the book of Hebrews and chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There are some in the back, and we will show verses on the screen to my right. Hebrews chapter 12, we began our final mini-series in this wonderful book last week. Now we pick it up in chapter 12. I'd like to read, and would you follow along with me, please? Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1. The Word of God says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to use your word to that end, that we would not grow weary or faint-hearted, but you would strengthen us now in Jesus' name. If you are a Christian, this passage describes you as being in a race of faith, a race of faith in Christ that requires Endurance. Endurance appears in all three verses. It's a race of faith in Christ that requires endurance. It requires perseverance. That's the main idea right there in verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You might want to underline that if you like to underline in your Bible. That's the main point. Run this race with endurance. That's God's command to every single believer here. The question is how? How are you going to do that? How? How will you run with endurance? That's a vital question, isn't it? What, what means are available to help you? What, what should it look like? What will enable you? What will God use? What will God use to enable you to keep running this race of faith if you are a Christian? Well, God shows us three means here, three, three ways we are to sort of run with endurance, three, three means He uses to help keep us going. Let's look at all three, beginning first with this, that we are to run with endurance by, by joining the community of faith. Run with endurance, that's the main idea. Here's the means, first, by joining the community of faith. Verse 1 begins again, therefore. So catch that, that's in light of chapter 11. And all I told you in chapter 11 about those heroes of the faith in chapter 11, all that's built into therefore. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he goes on to say, let us run with endurance. So you could kind of phrase this like this. Run with endurance, having around you this great cloud of witnesses. Run with endurance, having around you this great 
host of, of witnesses. It's like the believer in Jesus is in a great stadium. God has, God has put you in the spiritual Olympic Games. He has entered you in an event. It's called the Marathon of Faith. It's not a sprint. It's not the 100-meter dash. It's a marathon. The marathon of faith in this stadium you're in is, is filled in the grandstands. It's filled with people from, from chapter 11 and others who ran this race before you. But, but the idea is really not that they're watching you or cheering you on, you know, Moses with pom-poms. That, that's not the idea. It's, it's not the idea that they're looking at us, but we look at them as we join them in the same race. That, that's the idea. It's kind of like they've handed off the baton, and now God says in verse 1, now join them in the same race of, of faith. You might think of it like this. Hebrews 11, which is connected here, obviously. Hebrews 11 has been called the, the Westminster Abbey of faith. Westminster Abbey being the, the cathedral in the London area where many of England's dead heroes are buried. Never been there, but would love to go to Westminster Abbey where all of England's dead heroes are buried. Chapter 12, verse 1, does not view chapter 11 that way as a bunch of dead heroes. They're living witnesses to us, this is saying. Their lives can testify to you and, and help you and strengthen you as you run the same race of faith in the faithfulness of God and faith in the promises of God and faith in the purposes of God. So God is saying, run with endurance as you join in that same race. You might think about it like this, given that all of those heroes in chapter 11 are from our Old Testament. It might influence how you read the Old Testament and help you in how you read the Old Testament. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. It all points to and, and prepares for Jesus. And so the life of, say, King David is not about how to slay your Goliaths, you know, despite the movie Facing the Giants. <laughs> David's life is not in your Bible as a, a moral lesson for how you can slay your own giants. That's not why David's in the Bible. David's in the Bible as an imperfect, flawed king who received the promise of a great, perfect king to come. So the whole Old Testament centers on Jesus, but this verse is teaching us it is teaching us that we can benefit from the example of faith that has gone before us in all those people. They demonstrate to me and you faith through hardship and faith through difficulty and faith through suffering and yes, faith through their imperfections and, and weaknesses, but they ran this race of faith to the end. And so this verse is telling us we get help by recognizing that broader community of faith that has gone before us. You might be going through a hard time and you're thinking, I'm not sure if I can keep going. The trial's too hard, the difficulty's too great. Maybe you're thinking, no one has ever have to gone through this before like I'm going through this. You ever hear that? 
Sometimes the, the lies of sin and the enemy of our souls can, can say that to us. You know, you're the only one who struggles like this. You realize that. Seven billion people in the world, you're the only one who is this weak and struggles like this. Well, this verse reminds you, no, that's not the case. You're part of a long line of believers, a great community of faith, many of whom have already made it to the end so that you can say, by grace, by God's grace and God's power, it's possible I will get there to the very end. That's what God is inviting us here, first of all, as we run this race together. Look at others and be strengthened by the community of faith. Apply that. Apply that even to the community of faith right here. Even right here around you. Make some application. This can give us some vision for our relationships together and our, our fellowship together, can't it? We need the community of faith as we run the race of faith together. You want the effect of your, of your friendships the effect of your relationships, to have this kind of intentionality. I want to strengthen faith in those around me. I want, I want my friends built up in faith, and they to build me up too. It's, it's part of why we have our small groups, our home groups. Our home groups are restarting. And you can go with this purpose in mind, drawing application. I want to go to that meeting and strengthen faith in people's hearts and have them strengthen faith in mind. There's a picture here of the community of faith with whom we run. Those who've gone before us, yes, and by application, the community of faith, friends, around you right now. So that's the first encouragement. We don't do this alone. There's a community of faith with whom we run. But, but we also do look to ourselves to run this race. So secondly, we should see here, secondly, that we run with endurance, that's the main idea, by, by removing the hindrances to faith, addressing hindrances to faith. See, we're told next in verse 1, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. It's, it's kind of like run with endurance now, laying aside. Laying aside two things. The first is these weights, he says. Every weight. You see, athletes in this day, they would, they would have these long flowing robes on, but before the race, they would strip off their long flowing robes that could maybe slow them down, and I'm told they would run naked. So apparently that's part of the picture here. Strip off everything that could hinder you in the race. Yeah, don't get a visual on that. Just a little cultural background, that's all. In other words, put aside every weight that could slow you down in the race of faith. On Thursday mornings, I, I go to this, um, this class, this workout class at the YMCA. It's run by this, this uh, lady that has a sadistic ability to inflict punishment on you, which is a great, a great workout, that's why I go. But one thing she likes to have us do is she likes to have us run laps around the building carrying weights in our hands. And so I believe this was last week we, we did this. And it always strikes me every time how much more difficult it is to run with a mere 20 pounds in my hands. It changes everything. 
That's kind of like what's being said to us here by God. He's saying in love to us, why are you carrying those extra weights? Why don't you put those down? And you'll run all the more effectively. Now, it's interesting, right? We're not told anything about these weights. It's very general. These aren't sin issues necessarily. Just, just any hindrance that might slow you down. And, and what is a, a weight for me might not be a weight for you. And what's a weight for you might not be a weight for me. So, for instance, for instance, this week I deleted the Facebook app on my phone. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> Too many times I was scrolling through Facebook and really just, uh, just as a way to waste time. And finally this week, I was having my time with the Lord, reading His Word. Somehow, something felt urgent to check on Facebook and began, you know, wasting time scrolling through Facebook. And I finally said, I am too weak to do this. I, I have to delete this app. Now, just you don't misunderstand. Is Facebook a sin? No. Okay. Is the Facebook app from the devil? No. Is it wrong to use social media? No. Do you have to go back to a rotary phone and smoke signals to be a Christian? No. It's just an illustration to say, if it's hindering you like it was me, lay it aside. Maybe, maybe just take a break for a season even. That's what's in view. Could be, could be a video game that's hindering you, slowing you down. Could be, could be alcoholic beverages that are slowing your faith in ways, not wrong, but slowing you down by maybe overindulgence. Could be your career, if you're, if you're overworking and neglecting other priorities. It could be being consumed with your appearance, and that, that is driving so much of your attention. It could be a hobby, could be a sport, could be any fine preoccupation. None of those are wrong in and of themselves, but if they're hindering you from running well, God says, Lay them aside, at least for a season. Now, that's, that's not legalism if you're thinking that. Right? Legalism is laying those things aside to earn or maintain favor with God. This is laying aside a weight for a vibrant faith in your soul. But then God does get more specific. He tells us also to lay aside the sin, the sin which clings so closely. So this is, this is more serious, you might say, than weights that are kind of slowing you down. The, the picture here might be of, of a runner trying to run, but he's got some shackles on his legs, and those shackles keep tripping him up. That's what our patterns of sin can do in the race of faith. So, so catch this, God in this verse, is really, he's really connecting two things for us. He's connecting our sanctification with our perseverance. He's, he's connecting the process of change, the process of becoming more like Jesus. He's connecting that with running the race of faith 
to the end. It's an important connection. I know for myself, I have made at times in the past my process of change the, the ultimate and the center of my Christian life. And so everything becomes about a constant introspection, always seeking to identify sin, always seeking to expose heart idols, always seeking to kill sin. And that's not what we're talking about. That's not what God is after, as we'll see. But I do think here this verse calls for a, a healthy introspection, doesn't it? A checking in to say, is there a pattern of sin that's so clinging to me that I'm kind of tripping up in the race of faith? A mentor of mine, he likes to say, we never know. We never know where our sin might take us. That's always stuck with me. I've heard him say it many times. We never really know if we indulge that sin, if we give ourselves to that sin. We never know where that might end up in our lives. This um, pattern of lustful thinking about a coworker or a neighbor becomes a preoccupation with him or her leads to hanging out with him or her, leads to a touch, leads to a physical relationship, and you never thought this would get you here, but it can. It might. And so God says, with love, with love, deal with sin to persevere in faith. It's not condemning. It's, it's hope-giving. Deal with patterns of sin as a means of running with endurance. I just want to ask you, kind of personalize this, what might that look like for you right now? It's just good to ask, is the Spirit speaking to you about something recently? Is, is He showing you something right now as I'm making this point? Is God saying... My child, it's, it's like shackles for you right now. It's, it's tripping you up, and I want to meet you and help you. And if he is, friend, if he is, seek God's help and seek those around you for help that you might lay that aside and run with endurance. So we look. We look around us to the community of faith. We, we look in healthy ways within to deal with hindrances to faith. But most of all, most of all, we look outside ourselves, thirdly, to run with endurance by, by beholding the object of faith. And here, here's really the central means, isn't it? Run with endurance by beholding the object of our faith. Verse 2 makes that plain as it begins looking to Jesus. So catch this. It's run with endurance, looking to, reflecting on, beholding Jesus Christ. So to run the race of faith, you must, friend, look to the object of your faith. It's like when I was taking driver's ed a few years back. And I asked my driver's ed teacher, how do you keep the car in the middle of the lane? 
And he said to me, you don't do so by, by doing what you're doing and looking outside the window all the time to check the lane line. That doesn't keep you in the center of the lane. You must look down the road, down the road to the middle of the lane, and that will keep you from swerving. That's what the Christian life is like. Oh, friend, look ahead. Look to the object of your faith. Fix your gaze there, and you will not swerve from the race. And so what do we learn about this object of our faith here? Well, verse 2 tells us he is the, the founder of our faith, the pioneer, the author, the forerunner, the champion of faith. He, he blazed the trail of faith. That's sort of the picture. Though we have this great hall of faith in chapter 11, the one we're ultimately to look to is this founder trailblazer of faith, Jesus. He's the founder of faith, and he is the perfecter of faith. And the sense here is really, in Jesus, faith itself was perfected. In Jesus, perfect faith was put on display. That's the main idea. His whole, think about it, his whole earthly ministry demonstrated this unquestioning trust in his Father. Don't you see that in things like when he was in Gethsemane, just prior to being crucified? And, and the Son of God comes face to face with the cup of God's wrath for my sin and, and your sin. And that cup staggers him. The, the revulsion of guilt he will be in the Father's eyes. The, the fury of the Father's judgment against our sin. The separation from the Father's love with which He has always experienced. And it's almost, this cup is almost too much for Him. Almost. He prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. Remove this cup from Me yet, yet, not what I will, not what I ordain, but what you will. I embrace your plan. Do you hear his perfect faith there? That's what this is saying. The perfecter of, of faith. And out of that perfection of faith, we're told in verse 2, he endured the shame of the cross. We're really, we're really to hear that in this passage. The shame he endured. The Romans... The Romans only crucified slaves and the most base of, of criminals. The Roman Empire felt it was shameful to crucify their own citizens. I mean, you wouldn't crucify your own citizen because crucifixion was the, the ultimate of shame. It was meant to humiliate you. you. You hung naked on a cross perhaps for days until you suffocated to death. It was the height of shame. And this is the death that God in the flesh embraced. The shame of the cross. Think about, think about the effect that would have on the first readers and the effect it should have for you and me. The first people who got this letter, they were being persecuted for following Jesus, enduring some shame, enduring some hostility, 
some mockery probably for their faith in Christ. And, and thankfully, we're not being persecuted like that, are we? But we do live in a culture, friends, that is growing increasingly hostile to a biblical faith. To say that Jesus is the way and the truth and, and the life is, is practically a crime of intolerance. You are, in some quarters, considered a bigot if you think marriage should only be between one man and one woman by God's design. You are, in effect, a hate-mongerer if you think that God's design for sexuality is only heterosexuality, not homosexuality. Now, we can stand for those things in an abrasive way, in an unkind or unloving way that really can come across as hateful. We don't want to do that. But look, unless, unless you're an undercover disciple or deny the teaching of God's Word, you will experience some shame. You experience probably some slander from your coworkers or your neighbors, some degree of, of mockery from your family members who don't yet believe it. It is a matter of time, and probably some of you are experiencing that right now. But here's the point. You will endure it. You will keep going if you look to the one who embraced that shame first for you right? We'll embrace the shame, we'll endure the shame in the race of faith if we're looking to the one who took shame for us. We'll endure the mockery if we look to the one who endured mockery in our place for us. We won't withdraw from a hostile culture. We'll respond with love, we'll respond with good news if we're looking to the one who endured the cross, despising the shame for my sins and your sins to bring us to himself. He embraced that shame for us, and the verse tells us, for the joy, for the joy set before him, probably the joy of doing the Father's will and the joy of being restored to the Father's presence because, good news here, shame did not get the last word, right? How does verse 2 end? He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, catch this. The shame of crucifixion, it's saying, led to the glory of exaltation. And his exaltation means the triumph of faith. It means your faith is not in vain. It means he's risen, he's reigning, he's at the finish line of your race. Keep looking to him. You'll make it. You'll get there. And so we're told in verse 3, consider him. Consider him who endured such from sinners such hostility against himself. Consider, consider him intently. It's almost meditate on him. Ponder Jesus. Reflect on Jesus. And notice why. Purpose. So that, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Do those words describe you right now? It's easy to get there, isn't it? Weary in faith? Is that you? Faint-hearted in faith? I've been there. 
Is that you? Please realize this is not a call to stir up more faith on your own. It's not about having more more willpower for your faith. This is a call to look away from yourself to the object of your faith and find your faith strengthened as you do. It's good news. Faith, your faith grows as it considers its object. I love how John Owen, great theologian from the 1600s, put this track with him here. It's a little thick, but it's good. It is by beholding the glory of Christ by faith that we are spiritually edified and built up in this world. For as we behold His glory, as we behold His glory, the life and power of faith grow stronger and stronger. And then he says this, On Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more, notice this, the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes and I will be more and more crucified to this world. Become to me like something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. Do you catch what he's saying there? Owen's a little challenging, to say the least. He said, as we behold His glory, as we behold the glory of Jesus, the life and power of faith grow stronger and stronger. Why is that? Because the glory and splendor and majesty of Jesus makes everything else pale in comparison. Those those distractions, those hindrances, those weights, they just look so pale compared to this glory I see in Him. That's what he's saying. He's saying faith grows as it considers its object. It's it's what we saw in chapter 11 about Moses. It said, Moses endured seeing him who is invisible. Did you catch that last week? Moses endured seeing him who is invisible. It's what John Owen is saying. So you should ask, how do we see Him who is invisible. How do we do what Owen is saying and fix our eyes, our thoughts, our desires on the glory of Christ? How do you see Him who is invisible? Well, mainly you do so through His Word. Mainly you do so through His Word. As you read your Bible, Old Testament and New, you ask this question, where is Jesus here? You ask, how do I see His glory here? Old Testament and new. You ask the same question. How does this passage show me His splendor, His majesty, His finished work here? How do I see His perfection and the perfection of faith itself here? You ask that question in every passage and God begins to help you see with the eyes of faith so that you and I may not grow weary and lose heart. But do so, friends, do so remembering that Jesus is not just the ultimate example of faith. I think that's what's particularly in view here. But Jesus is far more than the example of faith, isn't He? He's the one who creates faith. He's the one who sustains faith. 
I, I read with my children, I think it was this past week, we're reading through the Gospel of Luke, and we came to Luke 22, where Jesus says to Peter, he says, Satan demanded to have you, Peter, that he might sift you like wheat. How'd you like that to be said of yourself? I'm not going to appear in any Hallmark greeting cards. Satan demanded to have you, Peter, that he might sift you like wheat. He's going to put you through the grinder to see what your faith is really made of. But then Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, <laughs> when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers, by the way. See, Peter is about to fail in his faith in a way, isn't he? And we do so. I do so in ways. You do so in ways. But Peter's about to deny that he even knows Jesus. I don't even recognize him from the high school yearbook. I, I have no, no acquaintance with this guy. But Jesus said, I, I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And his faith didn't ultimately fail. And the same Jesus sustains your faith if you are a Christian. The same one seated at the right hand of God, the very place of power, is representing you in heaven with his glorified wounds. And he is there sustaining you, your, your great high priest, as this letter talks about. He is sustaining you. He says, you feel weak? Come to me. I've got a throne of grace. I've got all kinds of grace and mercy available to keep you going. And he, friend, he will. So, run this race of faith with endurance. Run the race joining the community of faith, those who have gone before us and, and those around you right now. Run with endurance, removing hindrances to faith that you're aware of. But most of all, most of all, run with endurance, beholding, friends, the object of your faith, the founder and perfecter of faith itself, seated at the right hand of God, able to meet you and sustain you right now. And that's what we want to experience and enjoy as we take the Lord's Supper together. So would the ushers be prepared to serve us and the music team can come. Here's another means of seeing Jesus. Here's another means of communing with Jesus by the presence of the Holy Spirit and being strengthened. Now, if you're here this morning and you're, you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for being here. We are just delighted, delighted, delighted you would come. You're in the right place. This little celebration is for those who've already believed on Jesus. So we'd ask you just to pass the trays down the aisles. But I want to make the same exhortation to you to look to Jesus and believe. To consider Jesus his life, death, and resurrection for you. That if you turn from going your own way and trust, rely on what He's done for you, He will take away your sins, wash you from your guilt, and bring you to God and make you His very own child. I want to urge you to come to Christ even now, believing. If you are already a believer in Jesus Christ, as the trays come, take the bread, take the cup, hang on to both. We'll take the Lord's Supper together. But as you hang on to them, friend, be intentional.
Be intentional to pray for the Holy Spirit to give you eyes to look to Jesus and be strengthened. The ushers, please come.